usually how I like to start these conversations is, is really about an individual's journey. Um, and, and you're working on something uh, pretty amazing, uh, pretty new, pretty innovative. But let's start with how you got there and what happened before you started Moss. Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be talking here with you, Grant. I never really did anything or had anything to do with uh, environmentalism. But born in Rio, raised in Sao Paulo, which are the two biggest cities in, in Brazil and some of the biggest in the world. But half of my family lives way deep in the jungle in Brazil, not in the Amazon forest, but in a, a swampy sort of Everglade area south of, of the Amazon, which is called Pantanal which very few people know, but, you know, it has all the, you know, exotic fauna and, and biodiversity. You know, it, it's sort of like being, you know, in the middle of the forest. No, not sort of. It is like being in the middle <laughs> of the forest. And that's where I spent, you know, all my vacations, uh, my summers, et cetera. And this is how I, you know, got to be connected with, you know, just with the environment and, and to care about it. Uh, I went to school in the States. I went to boarding school near Boston, then I went to Stanford, and then I came back to Brazil and worked for eight, sorry, 18 years in uh, traditional finance, you know, uh, investment banking, and I was managing, I was working for a hedge fund, New York hedge fund, and then I set up my own fund that invested in uh, Latin American, the largest Latin American companies, you know, companies from Mexico, Chile, Colombia, Peru, et cetera, for uh, Canadian and U.S. endowments and pension funds. So my career really had nothing to do with it, but I did have this family connection and, well, three connections. One, through my family that lived in the forest, literally. Two, through my first wife. I married for the second time. Uh, my first wife was an analyst. Was one, she was one of the first ESG analysts in the, in the world, probably. Wow. Definitely in Brazil, you know, looking beyond the the bottom line uh you know the financial bottom line and, and trying to uh incorporate a more holistic approach to investment this began in europe in 2003 through the pri which is the principle for responsible investments at the time it was you know a novel idea you know to look beyond she sort of brought this to to brazil and i got to learn a lot about why you should one should look at in terms of you know environmental standards when investing, okay? Um, because the, the thesis is, uh, if companies look only at the bottom line, you know, it'll lead to uh, eventually excessive risk taking. You know, eventually the the shareholder might have a loss because you know the company dumped whatever oil in the ocean or something like that, right? Uh, so to avoid those losses in the long term, by doing the sort of analysis, you avoid these big losses and you you, you get better risk-adjusted returns. And she did this, so I, I, I learned about it and I, I applied a lot of that in my fund uh, when I was investing, uh, you know, I was managing my own fund. And I think the third connection is my my aunt was, she's passed away, but was very uh, well-connected uh, politically in Brazil. And she was connected with the guys who founded the Green Party in Brazil. So, you know, those three sort of uh, paths made me always be very interested in environmentalism. I, you know, I was, uh, as a kid, instead of being a fan of Michael Jordan or Pele or, you know, Michael Jackson, I was a fan of Jacques Cousteau, you know, the explorer and uh, a bunch of environmentalists in Brazil. So, and the moment of truth or existential crisis that made me, you know, leave the quote unquote dark side of finance to uh, work 
with environmentalism was two years ago when my daughter was born. It was a time when the new government that is now in, in power in Brazil, it was the first year for this government and the deforestation in the Amazon went rampant. I mean, it literally doubled you know, the rate on a year on year basis. And for me, it, it, it becomes always whatever happens there becomes very real because, you know, my family tells me, look, they're burning everything on over here and it's, it's getting really dramatic. You know, it's not something that I just read on the papers, right? Mm -hmm. Or read online. And I started thinking, look, a bunch of things when you have, do, do you have kids? I do not have kids. No, no. I have a nephew. So he's like my. You know, people always told me when you, when you, when you have a kid, you know, your perspective on things sure. changes. And I always thought, ah, that's bullshit, you know, right. whatever. I'm not going to change that much. It, it changes everything. And especially, you know, our long-term thinking. And I think we start, I started to question more my, my place in the world and what am I doing with my life? You know, the, the stereotypical, you know, quintessential uh, uh, existential crisis, right? Uh, like, why am I here? What am I doing with my life? I'm making, you know, rich people richer. What is that to do of, of good to the world? And that allied with the fact that I started thinking, look, if we who are probably know, you know, in emerging markets like in Brazil, very few people uh, go to college and, you know, so we have access to information. If we who, you know, know that things are going wrong, if we don't do anything about it, who the hell will, will it be this government? Will it be the NGOs and foundations that work on environmentalism? Like, who is going to fight for the Amazon forest? Like, year in, year out, we hear about the Amazon forest deforestation. Like, ever since, you know, I right. I have any sort of conscience, I, I, I remember this. So I started thinking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it a shot. Why not? You know, and I, I have two buddies, two friends, you know, from the dark side still of finance who have, you know, really great hearts and uh, they have NGOs for the conservation of jaguars in, in the middle of Brazil. It's a really cool uh, program that uh, conserves uh, jaguars in, in the middle of Brazil in, in a safari style of structure. You know, just like you have in Kenya or South Africa in which people on Jeeps, you know, the, the, yep. they get the animals used to the Jeeps, right? Uh, and through them, I started saying, look, I, I want to, I want to work for conservation. I want to. I want to work with this. You know, put me in touch with people. So they put me in touch with a lot of people. And long story short, I I, I started talking to people who were involved in conservation projects. Through their conservation project, they certify their work. They issue these sort of security, almost. They're not securities, but you know, they're titles that prove that you know an area was conserved. Those are called carbon credits. And, you know, those are sold to uh, polluting companies, basically. And we can definitely go into more detail how that works. But I started talking to them. I, I thought, wow, this is fascinating. You know, I had no idea this existed. And it seems to be like a, a solution for all uh, the climate change and, and devastation that we're witnessing in the world. And then I, I, I set up MOSS. Um, and MOSS, in a nutshell, and we can definitely go into more detail how it works, but the largest carbon credit platform in the world. And it shows you how incipient and how promising the sector is. You know, that a startup that we started last year is already the largest in the world. What it does, what we do is we analyze what we consider to be the best and most impactful conservation projects uh, in the Amazon that 
you know, protect areas of 100 to 150,000 hectares. That's like three, 400,000 acres. To give you an idea, that's like two or three times the, the, the size of New, York, of New York City. So gigantic wow. areas that are being yeah. served. And we buy wholesale, we buy millions and millions of credits from these guys. You know, we make sure that they are, you know, legitimate uh, and, and they're, they're, you know, doing the right thing. And we add a lot of technology in terms of geomonitoring and in terms of putting the contracts on blockchain so that they're secure and transparent. And we sell to individuals and, and uh, companies worldwide. Yeah, there's, it's, it's such an interesting thing. And I think there's I a had... lot there. Look, Grant, you, you're going to have, we're going to have a huge challenge here because we can talk for hours. Yeah, and, and I think, <laughs> I, I think hours. Let's, let's start at the base level of what exactly sure. is, a, is a carbon credit? Right, and maybe, and maybe, and maybe an example, right, from a, a parallel we could, we could, we could run here. So it helps me understand better. Uh, I think better of that course. way. So a carbon credit is a digital certificate that is recognized globally that follows a certain protocol uh, that proves that a company or an environmental project avoided the emission of one metric ton of CO2 or CO2 equivalent, like methane or uh, nitrogen uh, oxide. It's a mouthful. So it's basically a digital certificate that proves that someone you know, did something to avoid pollution. That's basically it. It's not contract, and there are many sort of myths or misconceptions about how carbon credits work or what they are. And the most common is, you know, carbon credit is, uh, you know, it proves, it's a certificate that proves that CO2 was sequestered from the air, that it's a physical thing. It's not a physical thing, okay? It's, it's a, an intangible concept. It's the concept of avoiding uh, pollution. So I, I think as most of us know, you know, clean energy projects like wind farms, solar panels, et cetera, they issue carbon credits, right? And they sell carbon credits, but they don't take CO2 from the air, right? So that's in, in the clean energy space, that's where it becomes you know, yeah. the most obvious. It's not the actual physical sequestration, right? The way it works is, you know, we globally as humankind, and these numbers are going to be, they shouldn't be shocking, but they, they're still shocking, which is concerning that people don't really know the, the gravity of, you know, the urgency of what we were going through. But we as humankind, uh, we emit 55 billion tons of, of CO2 per year. One metric ton of CO2 is like a balloon. You know, one of those balloons that people travel on? Yep. The size of a house full of gas. We're releasing 55 billion of those balloons per year to the atmosphere. This number 12 years ago, and it's, it's exponentializing, right? It, it, it's, it's growing on an exponential uh, basis because 12 years ago, our global pollution or emission of greenhouse gases was 25 billion. And of course, before the industrial revolution, it was zero. So it took 300 years to go from zero to 25 billion and 12 years to go from 25 billion to 55. So you see, it's, it's steeping up. If we continue to pollute or you know, emit 55 billion tons of greenhouse gas per year, as we're doing right now, in 50 years, and this is science, this is not an opinion, you know, as you know, maybe some of, of the populist right you know, tried to globally, not only in the US, but you know, try to question and say it's a hoax or whatever. It's not a hoax. Like 97% of world scientists affirm that there is climate change and it is caused by men. So what we're doing is if we keep doing this, polluting the way we are, 
In 50 years, by 2070, the world will, with a probability higher than 50%, be the following, this is the following scenario. The world will be like this. The whole, the whole tropical area of the world will be uninhabitable, okay? Um, because it will be, the, the temperature on, on a regular day, not even on a hot day, will be like 150 to 200 degrees Fahrenheit. All the world's cities by the shore, by the ocean, will be underwater. And more, more concerningly, more than half of the world's food production, will, or the, the world's food production will fall by more than 50%, which means that the poorest half of the world will, will die from starvation. When I learned all this by reading this book, The Uninhabitable Earth, which I highly recommend to everyone. Yeah, it's by a, a journalist, a New York journalist called David Wallace Wells. And he's sort of like, you know, me and you, you know, lay, he was, he's a layman who said, you know, let me figure this out. Let right. me see what actually is going on. And he talked to the scientists and, and I, I found out that I used to think that Greta was just this annoying teenager, you know, uh, excuse my French, busting everybody's balls about, you know, flying and, and whatever, driving cars and stuff. And she's not alarmist enough. This is what I found out. Like the situation is really, really critical. And in order to avoid that scenario, and that scenario is, is like, it's, it's right there, right? Like my daughter will be 52 when, when that, that happens, right? right? So in order to avoid that, we need to cut the world's pollution by, by half, by 50% in five to 10 years. That's it. Like if so we how don't do that, that yeah. it's a given that the scenario will be, you know, the, the, the nightmare uh, that it just described. How does carbon credits help that then, right? Yes. How, like so, let's... So that's the problem, right? And, and, and now I'm going to get to carbon credits. So the solution is uh, by putting a price on, on pollution. And, mm -hmm. and the way the world does that is through carbon credits. Uh, the world, out of those 55 billion, it mitigates or compensates or offsets, you know, they're all the same thing, 12 billion tons. So 20% of the world's pollution is mitigated somehow via the acquisition or transaction of carbon credits. Out of those 12 billion, uh, 11.9, so almost everything, is in regulated markets. Uh, so it, it means places like California, the East Coast states of the United States, Canadian provinces, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and this year, China. So most of the world's, you know, or the world's largest economies are regulated. And it means the government comes and says, look, jurisdiction, you know, a state or a continent in the case of Europe, you guys, you know, you can pollute whatever. Let's, let's pick Europe as an example. You can pollute, um, let's say you can emit 100 million tons per year, and they divide the economy into sectors, okay, mining, oil, aviation, whatever. And let's say the airline sector, they, they, they divide by the number of airlines, and they put a target on a per company basis, let's say 2 million tons per airline. If Lufthansa, let's say, just to give an example, yep. if Lufthansa pollutes or emits 3 million tons, they polluted 1 million above the target, they need to buy 1 million carbon credits because remember one carbon credit is one avoided ton, right? And let's say Falitalia or Air France pollutes 1 million less than the target, then they can sell. So mm. you create a mm -hmm. double incentive, right? For the following year in which, you know, the guy that, that polluted too much had a cost. So that guy will try to decrease its cost, right? And the, the guy who polluted less got a benefit. So that guy will try to increase his benefit. And that has been working for, for a while now, for more than 10 years. And in Europe, that led to a decrease, you know, these incentives led to a decrease in pollution of 25% and in California, 15, 15, 15%. Then 
Louise, how come you know the world has pollution has increased so much? China and India, right? yeah, more than compensate the reduction in in Europe and in some some states in in, in the U.S. Uh, so that's how the regulated market works, okay? And that's 99.3% of, of, of the global market. And then you have a tiny fraction, which is the most interesting part, and it, it, it's where we are focused at Moss, which is called the voluntary market. And it's called voluntary, quote unquote, because it's not right. obligatory by the government, but it's becoming more and more obligatory for companies to buy. They don't buy because they're nice. They're buying because demand be it from investors, be it from consumers, is is requiring them to do so, right? The, you know, people, when they're buying stuff, they're like, well, is the company that I'm buying this from yep. uh, compensating this pollution in the world, right? So, and that supply, which is of 100 million tons per year, that is coming from environmental projects, okay? And half of that comes from conservation projects, like the one I described, of best, best areas in forests across the globe, Brazil, Africa, Indonesia, et cetera. 25%, a quarter comes from clean energy projects and a quarter, the remaining quarter comes from a, a myriad of, of types of projects. And now the issue is, you know, that the, the, the world's largest companies like Amazon.com, Microsoft, right. Facebook, et cetera, they're all buying in the voluntary market. Uh, why? Because considering since demand is captive or obligatory in the regulated markets, prices are high. So when Microsoft... Well, Microsoft, a company like Microsoft does, when they, they announce a neutral pledge, this new yeah. neutral pledge that we read about on the news, what they're doing is they're calculating how much they're polluting in a year. So let's say they're issuing or you know emitting uh, 10 million tons per year of pollution or greenhouse gases. They need to buy 10 million carbon credits. And the options available for Microsoft are they can buy a regulated you know, carbon credit from the European market from a Lufthansa that polluted less than the target for $45, or they can buy... Uh, a regulated carbon credit from a company that polluted less than the target in California, like Apple, or they can buy a carbon credit in the voluntary market in Brazil, let's say, from uh, uh, an Amazon forest conservation project for seven bucks and say that they are protecting the Amazon and local communities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which one do you think they buy? Of course, they buy the Amazon forest one. Right? <laughs> it's cheaper and, it, and it's better marketing. So the the you know the world's flow of demand is flowing to, thankfully, to, to the voluntary market. That drives up prices. And this is the only commodity in the world where the higher the price, the better for the world, right? Anything else, you know, wheat, corn, oil, you're, you're you know, damaging or reducing the purchasing power of the poorest, right? Whereas with carbon credit, the higher the price, the more people are going to want to conserve forests and 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 do clean energy projects because they'll they'll, they'll get more money, right? I, I want to just dive into this a little bit just because there's sort of a between the, the regulated market and the voluntary market, it seems like a carbon credit is it different in the fact that in the voluntary market, the projects are actually like you can actually see them, right? Like this project will it's more tangible, yes. Correct. Yes. So, but how do those does the regulated market calculate? Mm -hmm. all the carbon credits if there's not a tangible project associated with it? Great question. What they can measure in the regulated market, and remember that when we're talking carbon credits, it's they're almost synonymous, right? I mean, since it's 99% of the total volume, the voluntary part, which is the more intuitive one for us, more tangible, easier to understand, you know, yeah. forest conservation, et cetera, it's a tiny, tiny part. It's less than 1%. And what the government does is 
they, they have measured, they can measure for the country as a whole, the country's emissions. And they, it's easy to measure uh, for an industrial process, how much that is, is emitting of, of carbon. So you, you have audit companies that come in, let's say you have a, a widget factory, whatever, you're yep. making shoes, you have a shoe factory, yep. okay? Making those shoes consumes energy, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Probably from thermal energy, sorry, from uh, uh, thermal plants that burn coal to generate that energy. Burning coal or burning fossil fuels of any kind yep. emits carbon. So that's the main source of, of carbon from industrial processes is the burning of fossil fuels to, to generate energy. Uh, so any industrial process, you know, as clean as it may be, even Tesla in making the electric cars sure. to use energy that comes from fossil fuels, right? So uh, even the cleanest sort of sector still emits carbon, but that's how they measure it, you know, at a, but how do they, a, how do they offset it then, right? Like how do they determine the offsets? Okay, for great, great point. Great point. And, and this is when we, we start getting into more <laughs> controversial philosophical questions. Like our hunch, our initial reaction, you know, they're not doing anything, right? <laughs> yeah, but it, you're creating incentives uh, for people to pollute less. That's the purpose. Remember that it's not a physical uh, phenomenon that you're certifying here, right? You're not physically certifying the sequestration of carbon. Right, you're okay. you're certifying the avoidance of, of 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 emissions. So, is that a big difference between the voluntary market though, because that actually sequesters the carbon? The only difference in the in the voluntary market is that the voluntary market is defined by not being obligated by the government. Mm -hmm. It ends up being coincidentally okay. that that governments that that's a great question. And, and here's the difference: governments and regulators they have an easier time, as you can imagine. You know, auditing and measuring how much companies pollute, and these—that's the—that seems the easy part, right? It's kind of the measurement. It it seems the very much the easy part. It's the it offsetting. Is, it works. Tangible offsetting is 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 the issue. Feels like. I, I I wouldn't like to call it tangible offset because the 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 project, let's say the forest, uh, it's also avoiding emissions. It's not taking CO two out of. Gotcha. The so gotcha. the concept is the same. It's just easier for governments uh, to to measure, you know, how much companies are polluting, and you have also the fact that these forestry uh, protocols they are they are controversial. Like some people say that you know avoiding the emission is it, it's too subjective, and that you can't really measure that so well. Mm -hmm. And governments want to avoid all, all that discussion, so they they don't yet accept the the forestry or, or clean energy protocols in general. It's, okay. it's more of a political issue on what's easier to explain to your constituency. It, yeah, no, it's a, I think it's a, it's a great answer to it. it. It just seems like why would they take the same approach as, as Moss did? I guess why is the tangible a very tiny percent? Well, let me explain how it's certified. Because I think it'll become clearer on, in the voluntary market. Like a, a clean energy project, let's say a, a wind farm that has a gigawatt of, of power, okay, yep. Of, yep. of potential power. If you built a wind farm, you know, of one gigawatt, you avoided the construction of uh, a coal plant of one gigawatt. Gotcha. And let's say what the auditor, what the auditor does is, you know, the auditing company says, look, Mm -hmm. If there were a coal, a coal plant here, it would pollute or emit 1 million per year. 
one gotcha. million tons per year. So this project, you're going to get awarded, you know, you grant, mm -hmm. you own a whole farm, you're going to get allocated uh, one million carbon credits per year that you're going to sell to polluting companies. like Microsoft. And the, the company gets allocated that, correct? For building the, the wind farm or the... Exactly, right. Gotcha. So right. they have... So, a, I mean, they, you they, hire... You, so you bank you up hire, carbon credits. Uh, right. You hire uh, like an auditor or, or certification company. They come in, they do this calculation and they go to the global registry. There, are, There's this watchdog figure of a nonprofit foundation. It's a bunch of nonprofit foundations. There's one that is larger than the others, and it's the main one globally. It's called Vera. And, you know, they go to Vera and say, look, this project, you know, grants wind farm in whatever, Wyoming uh, is avoiding the, the pollution of or emission of 1 million tons per year. Gotcha. So grant in his digital account on this global registry is going to get allocated 1 million carbon credits every year that it's going to sell you know, Grant's wind farm is going to sell to, let's say, Shell or Chevron or whatever. Yep. For them to buy, cancel those credits, they'll send you money, you'll send them carbon credits, they'll cancel those, retire those, and then they'll get a, a certificate that, that will, will allow them to claim that they mitigated, you know, uh, X amount of pollution per year. Now, that's how it works for the clean energy projects. For the forestry projects, it's a bit more, you know, intangible and it requires more of our imagination because it's it's a little more intangible. But forests are big carbon reservoirs. Yeah. Okay. A tree, half a tree is made of carbon, carbon atoms. You know, if you recall from high school chemistry, trees are made of, of cellulose and a cellulose molecule is C6H1206. So when you burn or slash a tree or any sort of plant that those carbon atoms you know that molecule breaks and it forms co which is carbon monoxide co2 carbon dioxide and methane ch4 so what you want to do with a huge forest when when it gets slashed and burned not only do you lose you know that the whole you know environment for for animals for you know other trees and stuff like that but no, not only does it impact the whole balance of the biosphere, uh, but it also emits carbon because, you know, when the tree dies or when it gets burned, that's being, you know, carbon is being released to the atmosphere. Gotcha. Now, in Brazil's case, for example, it's, it's extreme. Brazil, out of the 55 billion tons of global pollution or emissions, Brazil emits 2 billion. And out of Brazil's 2 billion, 1.5 comes from deforestation. So it's 75% comes from us, you know, Brazilians uh, slash and burning our forests. If you take a, an area of 100,000 hectares, it usually has 1,000 tons of biomass per hectare. So, you know, a four and half of that is carbon. So a 100,000 hectare forest will have 100 million tons of biomass and it'll be like a 50 million ton CO2 reservoir. Real quick, yeah, sorry, so you you get so you could get carbon credits for not destroying something or preserving something. Exactly. Okay. It's for avoiding the destruction. Just like a company that polluted less than a target avoided the pollution yes. of, let's say, right in my airline example, it's the same concept. It's avoiding pollution, right? But as you can see, imagine the complexity of proving that a forest avoided the deforestation of whatever. Correct. Yep. Right? Yep. You've got to have satellite images. You've got to have all sorts of studies. You've got to have 
uh, drone imaging. You got to go there and interview local communities. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are all sorts yeah. of, it's highly complex, expensive, and very presential physical work. And governments, like, imagine the regulator in California, you know, they don't want to get their fingers dirty with or tangled in this, you know, philosophical discussions. Well, and there are all sorts of subjective discussions on, on the forest conservation carbon issues. For example, there's the concept of leakage, which is some critics of carbon credits or offsetting on, on forestry projects. They say, you're just shifting the, the deforestation. If you protect an area, mm -hmm. you know, the deforestation from that area just goes to the neighboring area. So you're not, you know, really doing anything. It's mm -hmm. like you're trying to dry you know, ice with towels or whatever. <laughs> you know, well, you can save one area, but you destroy it. You destroy another, right? Like it's, it's right. Chicken and egg. So that's one of the issues, you know, and in the studies for, or the analysis for carbon credit certification in forestry projects is, it, it ends up being highly complex because exactly this sort of issue, like you, you can't just monitor that specific area. You've got to monitor the whole, uh, you know, you've got to have a more wholesale approach, a macro approach to 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 see the the behavior of the whole area. Yeah, it and because it's a I, lot of information. I know. <laughs> no, no, no. It, it, it's great. No, I mean, it's it's great conversation. The, the argument, for example, Gates, Bill Gates, and and um, the Gates Foundation and Elon Musk, and I think Richard Branson as well, are giving a lot of research grants and investing a lot in in CO two sequestration machines or CO two capture machines. And those uh, have an implicit cost of uh, $500 to $1,000 per ton of CO2. You know, the, the Amazon Forest Carbon Credit, as I mentioned, you can buy wholesale at seven or eight bucks. So, you know, the, the quick and dirty way that we can reach that target of, of reducing the world's pollution by 50% so we avoid, you know, doomsday or Armageddon in, in 2070, it has to go through carbon credits. The, the capture machines are, are not going to become cheap fast enough for us to, mm. to save the world. Gotcha. That's the point. Is there evidence that this is working to some sort of degree? Like, what is the analysis say yeah. thus far? Yes. Yes. Like I mentioned, uh, emissions in Europe, you know, using this system yep. uh, fell by 25% in, in 10 years. So it works. You know, yep. in California, the emissions dropped by 15%, one five. In spite of a growing economy, okay, so right, you know, right. the, the, the argument that it's either growth or, uh, you know, uh, pollution uh, doesn't work. Yeah, it, it's, it's it's simply not true that the economy doesn't exist. And so, what Moss does, it provides a a platform to you as an individual or a business to buy carbon credits, store them in a digital wallet, and then you can also sell the credits. Exactly on Moss, correct? Is that is that sort of in a nutshell what Moss provides? And then we'll get yeah. into the token part because the token part is super interesting as well. Yeah, we are, we are a carbon credit retailer. Our model is not much different from amazon.com in the beginning. And we, our vision is to be, no pun intended, you know, the environmental amazon.com, uh, mm -hmm. you know, in the future. Amazon.com began buying books wholesale and they bought in gigantic volumes and they got a discount and selling retail and with the novelty or the innovation of being digital, right? Or online, you know, replace books for carbon credits and online for blockchain and you've got mm -hmm. Moss. 
Mm-hmm. We do the exact same thing. We, buy we should have just started there. Sources. We should have just started there. That was so easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Very well explained. <laughs> and like Amazon.com, and this is our vision, of course, our target, is Amazon.com said, wow, I'm making a lot of money doing this with books. You know, mm-hmm. maybe I can do this with CDs, DVDs, electronics. And they started increasing, you know, the, the number of items and, and types of products they sold. And eventually they were selling so much stuff that, you know, retailers, sellers of widgets, of things were willing to pay Amazon to, to sell stuff on their platform. And buyers were also willing to pay a subscription to Amazon, you know, which became Amazon Prime to get access to, you know, their gigantic menu of things to buy. That's how we envision Moss or that's how we intend Moss to develop in the future. I mean, you know, we're like Amazon.com in 99. Car- carbon credits are the books. So that's sort of the first step in, in all this. Eventually there'll be carbon credits and other forms of organic possible. products from the forest. Uh, uh, there are there are all sorts of other environmental assets, biodiversity credits, for example, mm, uh, that work the same in the same sort of structure or cost. We need it. We need ocean credits. We save our there are ocean credits. credits. Great. There are ocean credits. Amazing. They're called <laughs> it's called blue carbon. It's really oh, cool. that's right. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Blue carbon is uh ocean carbon credits. And it, it, it is a challenge because it, it is the most challenging one to measure, of course. Yeah. You know, oceans are moving things. It's it's hard to to measure the avoidance of of pollution and all that. But it's really important for uh beaches, you know, Everglades, that that sort of environment to protect that uh you do it through uh blue carbon and and the idea of of moss let's get to maybe the token part as well if we could chat about that for a little bit so nco2 is the moss token which can be traded as an asset correct on cryptocurrency exchanges crypto exchanges yes yes yeah so that that then gets more people involved because it becomes a tradable asset that's it. The, the idea is, to, I mean, is to get obviously many, many more people buying and selling these things, and that makes it more valuable, and more people in turn use them at scale. Carbon credits are fascinating because they carbon credits were the first global digital commodity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Until carbon credits showed up, you only had physical commodities like oil, and a commodity being you know a standardized contract that is defined the same way the world yep. over. Yep. Um, so you know, a barrel of oil. Uh, a bag of sugar, you know, whatever. And carbon credits were created. They were the world's first digital asset. They were created a decade or more than a decade before Bitcoin in 2009. Uh, and yet, paradoxically, it's the only commodity that it still trades analogically. Like people, when Apple wants to buy a carbon credit, it doesn't go to an electronic system. Although it is an electronic asset, it picks up the phone and calls a broker in Europe, that calls a broker in Brazil. Interesting. That calls a, a broker in the middle of the forest, that calls the forest project, and then they call each other back. And they do, they do this back and forth. And then the Apple sustainability analyst goes presentially, physically to the forest to check it out and, and whatnot. So one transaction takes wow. like more than a year. Wow. It's highly inefficient. Yeah. When I looked at this, I said, really? Like we're in 2021 or at the time 2019 and and people are still trading carbon credits on the phone like this, this unbelievable makes sense, you know, right. unbelievable right 
and there's no transparency. Of course, when people are trading things on the phone, you know, you don't know, there's no transparency on price, on volumes, like nobody knows what was, if you ask, if until we showed up and we standardized carbon credits via the MCO2 token, yep. you know, you can now go on the screen and I can send you a bunch of sites that have the price link and you can see a carbon credit is worth 17 bucks. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, the most carbon credit. Until then, if you ask Apple, what's the price of carbon, they'll tell you five bucks. And if you ask BP, they'll tell you 15. And, you know, prices were all over the place and nobody knew yep. the actual price because those transactions are, they're secret. They are mm. you know, non-public, they're private. So that's what really caught my attention, that it was still trading analogically, the inefficiency of it all. Yeah. And more importantly, when I started studying the, the demand and supply, you know, I gave you all the, the supply figures. Yep. And as I said, it's, there's a, a, an, an interesting point on, on demand. Demand is skyrocketing and it's not coincidental that all the major companies of the world started announcing neutral pledges uh, two, two years ago. Yep. What happened two years ago, Grant, that very few people talk about it. It's not a rhetorical question. But what demographically happened two years ago that nobody talks about? Something happened two years ago that very few people talk about, but it, was, it had massive implications in the world, especially in the world of carbon credits. Millennials became the, the world's most important demographic group. Yep, there you go. They surpassed baby yes. boomers. Yes, yes. So forever, I've always heard baby boomers are the most important demographic group. That shifted two years ago. Mm -hmm. You know, millennials are now 30%, millennials being, you know, people from 20 to 40. Millennials are now 30% of the world's population, 50% of the world's workforce, and in five years, there'll be 70% of the world's workforce, which means that, you know, the, the world's most populous or, you know, most important demographic group, they have totally different values. I mean, example, it's not a coincidence that sustainable investment or ESG funds Flows in 2018 were 100 million. Last year were 15 billion, and this year will be 50. Why? Because millennials are investing, you know, instead of our parents or grandparents. Yep. And millennials are consuming. So for when you buy whatever detergent, for you it's a lot more important for that detergent not to be pollutant than it was for your parents. Mm -hmm. And that is that changes everything. Yeah. So so companies. They're not compensating because they want to. Unilever announced a global pledge to make carbon neutral products, all their products carbon neutral by 2025. Mm -hmm. Are they doing this because they're nice? Because, you know, they're, they're tree huggers? <laughs> no, they're doing it because it's a business decision. Yes. And they're prepared for a world in which this will be important for demand. And they'll sell more if they have carbon neutral detergent. And this is, of course, because of that, choice that I said that companies have, you know, that Microsoft is faced with, remember yep. the $45 yep. credit in Europe versus the seven bucks one in the Amazon, all that demand, uh, you know, marginal demand is flowing to carbon credits in the Amazon. When I looked at that, or in, in the voluntary market globally, when I looked at that, I said, oh my God, you know, the price of this thing is going to rip. I mean, it's really going to rip because for example, demand supply is, since it's so complicated to add you know, supply because it's so complicated to certify the projects and everything. Um, supply is relatively stable for the next years, but uh, demand this year, two years ago, it was hundred million. 
demand 100 million supply. This year, we're talking about 100 million supply and probably 1 billion of demand. So prices yep. you know, are taking off. So this is why we focus on the voluntary market. This is also why I started looking into buying carbon credits as an asset to carry. And then what I found out, and this is where the idea for Moss came from, there was no place for me to buy carbon credits. You, you can mm-hmm. buy carbon credits as an expense, as you can go on websites in which you say, have you ever compensated your carbon footprint? Yeah, so I do it through a, uh, a system. It's called the Vera Initiative. You know, as an individual or a person, you could pay like six bucks a month. And then that in turns yep. through, through the software, it shows you how much you can offset. It's, it's really interesting. You would love it. You're like the, the second person out of maybe 5,000 people that I have asked this question that has compensated your carbon footprint. So congratulations for that. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, the point I'm going to make is when, when I was trying to buy carbon credits, yes. I, thought, I, I saw this, this model that you described. And I said, this is a donation. I want to donate, but I I don't want to just donate. I I also want to buy the asset. I want, you know, for people. Brilliant. Right? And I I also saw that transaction and I I thought, look, I'm getting an email or PDF or or whatever. What guarantees me that this guy is is legit? Like, you know, it could be a scam. It could be someone that just created some sort of website. Like, you know that this is, you know, legitimate and, and stuff, but it might just as well, you know, be a, like a Ponzi scheme or whatever. So I, th- I thought if I put this on blockchain and people can trace it way the, you know, back to the original, you know, the, the project that was originating this thing, like for example, you know, taking plastics out of the ocean and kind of stuff and generating jobs and, and whatnot. And I price it below, you know, the existing sites and I give the person the asset, like a, the, the actual token. For example, if you had known of Moss and you, yes. you sent the same $72, yep. but we give you an asset, it's we price brilliant. it instead brilliant. of 72 at 50 bucks and we put it on blockchain. Like yep. why the hell are you going to do it with the other one? So mm-hmm. that that's how the idea for Moss came about. And this is why we put it on blockchain to, to give it transparency and, and security. The asset, the tokenizing of it is absolutely uh, i think the way to go i think that's how you scale it that's how you get more people involved that's um, it. when you can buy and sell an asset that it's interesting because the asset does something right which is exactly. is it, a bit different as well yeah um, there's there's like a, a a purpose to it yeah like a, besides an economic purpose there's there's additional purpose to it so I want to I want to try to wrap up, even though I want so many. I still have so many questions. Uh, <laughs> I, I guess one would be, what are you opti- What are you, are you optimistic? I guess going back to China, India, right? It's like it, it. I guess it's hard for whether it's Europe or the United States to tell them to not grow at the same pace and scale like we did, right? If you grow like the U.S. and the U.K. and you have, I mean, in Europe and you have five x the amount of people, then yes, that's a lot of damage that the Earth is going to go through. But there's also a lot of people living in extreme poverty in those areas, right? So it's like, how can the world tell them they can't get out of that, but the developed world has, right? And, and look, I, I'm sort of with you. I think technology and there's a lot of systems out there where they can scale better than Europe and America did, you know, hundreds of years ago. I guess, what, what are you sort of optimistic about? And do you think we have it in us as 
a human species to, to kind of get this done? Great, great question and great point. Uh, that's the main argument that politicians in emerging markets have against implementing this, but it's, it's a false argument because it's based on the false premise that you have to choose between growth and the environment and you do not. As, as I said, you know, Europe- You're totally right now. I think it can be done that way. It can definitely be done. And Europe and California have shown, you know, the economies, GDP in those places doubled and pollution dropped. So it can be done. The second point is that the millennial generation between environment and growth, they choose environment. And it, it's, it'll, I think in, in 20 years, our kids, like my daughter, she's now two. So when she's 22, she's gonna, I have this hunch and it's great that this is being recorded so that, you know, in 20 years we can look back and I'm pretty confident she's gonna look back and say, you know, dad, what the hell were you guys thinking burning oil to run your, your cars? I mean, you know, what were you thinking? <laughs> you know, sort of like we sort of criticize our grandparents for, you know, smoking on planes and stuff like that. hundred percent. Like, you know, hundred percent. So also, it's the treat, I feel like the treatment of animals too, like they're going to look back and say, man, you guys really treat animals like shit. It's, exactly. That, that's going to be another one. I feel like in 50. Yeah. That's another one too. So, you know, it, it's a change, it's structural changing happening in, in, in culture for the world. And I think the third important point to be made here, you know, that makes me optimistic, it has become a geopolitical trophy to be a green economy. Like the Chinese yep. are super smart. It's yeah. It's a millennial culture. It's it, I mean it's it's been around for for millennia. They know that it, it's a gigantic population, and the only way the regime can uh, self purpose uh, that they can stay in power is via uh, tapping or you know into the demands of the population. And the population in China has been demanding uh, a decrease in pollution for many years now. There were riots and, and revolts uh, in uh, 2013 and 14 because pollution was just too high. It gets to a point where people are like, well, I'm going to die anyway, so yeah. what the hell? You know, uh, I'm, I'm going to rebel, and if the government kills me, so be it, right? You know, let it, pollution got to the point where people have nothing to lose. They start rebelling. Right. And that's the greatest concern, of course, for you know a more autocratic regime like China. And China is really the most important piece in this chessboard because they're responsible for one third of the world's pollution. So, you know, and, and there is a guideline for the government for many years now uh, for China to decrease its pollution and to become the world's green power. So there is like a, like we had as humankind, a nuclear race between the US and the Soviet Union in the 60s, 70s. Now there's a green race between China, Europe, and the US. How it's different no is that, huh? How, how different, yeah, cool, cool is that? <laughs> it's a cool race, yeah, of course. Uh, but, you know, being green generates jobs, you know. Yep, that's the other example, factor. Yep, that's the other big factor. Yeah, you know, for example, China, makes 95% of the world's electric scooters and electric buses. That's geopolitically, you know, of course, an advantage that China already has over the US. I'm pretty sure the Biden administration is not comfortable with that. You know, that it's, it's already behind China and Europe 
in in a lot of uh, green industrial sectors. So, so I am very optimistic because I think politically, demographically, culturally, the world is aligning. This, you know, that solving the world's pollution is the most important thing out there. It's becoming a consensus. It, it's no longer, you know, let's talk economics, employment, health, and then environment. It's let's talk environment and then the rest. Because it affects it affects everything else, right? I mean, that's the domino. It affects everything else, right? I mean, that's the domino that follows that affects it all. If we keep destroying the planet, we're not going to exist. So, you know, who the hell cares about poverty, health, etc.? <laughs> we're not going to be around. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Luis. This was uh, this was amazing, and thank you for for educating me and 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 helping me understand, you know, these complex issues, right? I mean, I think we're still in such the beginning stages of all of this that uh, I can't wait to see um, what innovations come out of this. And obviously, I think transparency gets better, you know, as we, as more people get uh, into this world and, and understand it and kind of, you know, buy once, once people buy assets, right. And buy carbon credits, I think they will start to educate themselves more. And, and so will businesses. So at scale, I think it gets more people talking about it, thinking about it, but I think that's the power in tokenizing something. When you become an asset, I think people like to learn more about it. I mean, obviously the, with the crypto boom, Right. I mean, I think more and more people are just learning about it, understanding it. Once you understand it, you know, you'd like to purchase it and then you can trade it or save it or, or do whatever else you want with it. So, you know, I say all that to say, you know, best of luck on on building a really complex system. Uh, but we need you, we, we need, we need te- people and teams like you to to take it on. Right. So uh, keep grinding, my man. Thank you, sir. It's it's a pleasure. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. It's a lot of the work. I think is about having you know uh, conversations like this and you know spreading the gospel, so to speak. It's it's an awareness issue. Like when, when people know that this exists, they yeah. adopt it because it's it's such a cool concept. It, it's it's hard to grasp, but once people grasp it, you know the acceptance is is very high. So and uh, once we get past that hurdle of getting people to know about it, then uh, I think there's definitely high hope for for the world's pollution to drop. Uh, So thank you so much for the opportunity.